Hello, friends. We are back with episode 109 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. We are recording this on the very last day of January, a very frigid one at that here in the Midwest, but we're going to spice things up as always with some excellent R content for your listening pleasure. And thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are around the world. My name is Eric Nance, and I am joined as always by my right-hand companion on this podcast, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Eric. I'm a little worried because I think some of that frigid weather going on in the Midwest is headed our way this weekend. It looks like uh, sub-zero temperatures Fahrenheit here over on the East Coast this weekend. So uh, thank you very little, as my father used to say, Oh yeah, for that. Yeah, the, the Midwest is in a giving mood, I guess. Um, <laughs> got my... My face a little knocked off by the wind when I opened the garage this morning. So I'm awake now for sure. If you ever need wake up call, wind chills at or below zero, we'll do that to you. (laughs) (laughs) But we're going to keep you awake the fun way in this episode because we got a lot of great content to share with you all in our latest issue of our weekly that's been curated by John Calder. And he's, as always, he's had tremendous help from our, our weekly team members and contributors like all of you around the world. So let's get right to it, shall we? Well, much like anything in the real world, there's only so much you can control when it comes to your R code. Now, the ideal situation, at least in this host's opinion, is that everything is self-contained and maybe you're making this awesome new R package and it doesn't really need anything else around it. It just has everything inside that you need. But reality bites, as they say, you may depend on an external data source such as a database that's online somewhere, maybe an API that's giving you endpoints, or your code could be executed on a completely different environment. And you've heard this advice in the past when it comes to package development, add tests to your package. It'll make life for you and future collaborators much easier. But when you're writing these tests and you start to figure out that, oh, wait a minute, My package isn't just this R code per se, it's this interaction with other stuff. How can you really account for these outside influences effectively? Sure, you can go down quite a few rabbit holes with putting a lot of conditional logic in your code to test for certain odd situations, but there might be easier ways. And in fact, that's where our first highlight comes in, where Ma'al Salman, research software engineer and former R-Week curator, has another terrific post on the R-Hub blog about adding a technique called switches to your R code. What's interesting here is that this is a great blend, if you will, of dealing with environments, but also making your code fairly self-contained with a little bit of modification. The pattern that she starts with is like I mentioned in the intro here, your package may depend on an online resource and hence it needs to be on the internet somewhere, right? You may want to build some conditional logic that tests if the internet is down to warn the user and maybe get out of town, town, so to speak, or otherwise keep on going. But what happens is when you're actually doing your unit tests for the package, how do you deal with actually the situation that the internet is down. Do you literally unplug your ethernet cable or do some other crazy stuff? Well, not necessarily. This is where one of the unsung heroes of the R package ecosystem comes into play. I'm gonna give it some love here. The with R package 
can be a real help to you in situations like this. If you haven't heard of with R or wither, who knows how it's pronounced, send your corrections to me if, you, if I'm getting it off. But what wither does is that it lets you temporarily change something about your code's execution. And in this case, imagine you have an environment variable on your system that indicates that something is different. Usually we associate this with API keys or other ways to get into systems, but you can make an environment variable do anything. You can make it so that if it has some kind of value that it shouldn't, that, hey, something's wrong. So what Miles' example here shows is that if she tests for a funny little environment variable that she makes just for the purposes of testing the package, and that returns anything, that in her convenience function for the internet's down, it's going to return, yeah, it is the internet's down. But you don't have to do that all the time. You can do that with WithR in your test code. This is a real handy little trick. And I've done this with like directory mappings, but I never thought to do this in my testing code. So now the actual function that's going to be depending on the internet is still really clean. But yet now with this little clever use of environment variables in the test that schema, it now becomes much easier to deal with these inconsistencies that can happen in your environment. And Ma'al concludes with another approach in this space that we've seen a lot, especially with packages that deal with web resources, that's called mocking. And mocking can be a great tool. And in fact, I've used it a little bit in, the re in a package I just created for doing some fun stuff with podcast metadata. But there can be a bit of a rabbit hole that takes you down too, where you have to be very disciplined on what you changed, why you changed it. It can be difficult to track that down. So it's not a bad approach by any means, but it really depends on how extensive you wanna go down these exercises. But I really like my else technique here. I think it's a great way to get started with Anytime you have to build a test that deals with outside factors, I think this switch approach with clever use of environment variables is a really neat pattern to understand. So as usual, Ma'al explains this with code throughout the post and very quick explanations with links to deeper dives into some of these concepts about just why testing can be really hard and the approach of mocking that she concludes at the end. Nothing to mock here, so to speak. This is an excellent post and I really enjoyed it. Mel always provides really brilliant software development advice for our programmers. And that's a, a really cool niche, I think, that she operates in. And, and su everything she publishes, I have found super useful. So, so thank you again to Mel for this blog post as well. I think I had seen a question on, on Twitter from Colin Fay that was in a very similar vein a couple weeks ago. So Colin, if you're out there listening to this, uh, maybe Mel's blog post could help you. And Exactly as you said, Eric, you did a great job recapping it, but the, the unit tests that you include in your package, which you should be including in your package, may not always be run from the same environment um, at the time that those tests get executed, perhaps at build time. You know, maybe you have a function that requires an internet connection or database connection and, and accompanying unit tests that tests for that connection. And you don't want this test to not fire just because, you know, there exists an internet connection at the package build time. 
um, that's often outside of your control, or at least very difficult to configure shutting off the internet on the operating system at build time, right? That would be a whole nother rabbit hole that you would have to uh, run down. So a, a really nice way around this is, is to add an environment variable call uh, within the function and then set the environment variable within the unit test itself. And this is probably to me out of the two different approaches uh, that Mael outlined between this approach and that she calls using switches and the, using the use of the mockery package. I think this is probably the, the preferred one in my view, um, but your mileage may vary, obviously, depending on your use case. And you can use the local underscore envvar function from the, the with r package. And it's got to be with r, right? It can't be wither. I don't know. I don't know. I, it's I, spelled like wither, but the concept has to be with R. Yeah, right? yeah, I, I'm with all you lowercase. Yep. All lowercase uh, <laughs> to set an environment variable for that test only. Um, that, that's how you can use that function, which is super, super cool. And there's also right that alternative approach using mockery, which is a package I had not stumbled upon before. It sounds like you you have Eric. Um, and within mockery, there's a function called stub which has arguments that let you specify a particular function in your package, the context within that function that you want to modify, and the value you want to provide that context. And there's a great example of this in the blog post, which is a short and easy read, which, which will probably connect the dots a lot better than I could right now. ML concludes by really discussing the pros and cons of using switches versus mocking. And I thought that that was super interesting. And I can see this as being really useful in some of my R, R packages and where I immediately went to was functions that either establish or utilize database connections where maybe at testing time, those database connections may not authenticate on the machine. You know, for example, GitHub Actions uh, may, may not authenticate on the machine where the unit test is being run due to whitelisted IP addresses, firewalls, things like that. And however, if I have other functions that rely on the database connection being present, I want my unit test for those functions to run and fire appropriately. So I'm super excited to have come across this blog post. Thank you very much to the R Weekly Highlights curators because it's absolutely something that I'm going to be incorporating into my package development and unit testing. Yeah, I got some projects at the day job where I was uh, a bit loose, so to speak, on thinking everything's going to be fine with that custom API that the IT group set up a three, few years ago. And then, oh, wait, they changed the AWS back. And, uh-oh, now I'm getting these random errors in RStudio Connect's deployment logs that, oh, your automated job has failed. And I'm thinking, I didn't change a thing. Well, something else changed that I didn't know about. So I've got some homework to do. <laughs> this week to to correct some of those mistakes but certainly yeah for getting into that framework my was post here i think is a great on-ramp to it and again you've heard me say before but with the tooling available if you're a package author i'm sorry there's no excuse not to test now those days are over i'm watching you believe me <laughs> Real good software developers say write the test first, right? And then write the function second. The infamous test-driven development that I may or may not adhere to, uh, <laughs> depending on when you ask me. But uh, those of yes. you listening out there, you know the struggle is real. Speaking of struggling, perhaps. Now, 
And we talked about some of these environments are probably going to deal with data sources and sometimes really complicated data sources that you have to tidy up and merge together. And one of those data sources that certainly has been a huge part of many data science pipelines is geospatial data. The amount that you can get with, you know, it can be simple coordinates all the way to terrains and other very interesting information. There is a lot you can do in this space. And many, many machine learning pipelines are now depending on this type of data. Now, what happens when you start to get, you know, voluminous versions of this data, and then you've got to figure out how to merge all this together. This is a domain that's not in my wheelhouse specifically, but I can certainly understand the pain points when you try to do this in the quote unquote usual way on your own machine. And suddenly you're dealing with thousands, sometimes millions of data points that are slowing things down quite a bit. Well, this great post from Ryan Garnett, who is part, who is a data management insights and analytics manager at Green Shield Canada, has an awesome guest post on the Posit blog about how he's been able to wrangle very interesting and comprehensive Canada spatial data with the use of clever technology on his own machine. Yes, it's an awesome guest post from from Ryan Garnett on the Posit blog, and he analyzes geospatial data at Greenshield Canada. His post is about taking a, a distributed approach, which means spreading a job across multiple cores on your machine or multiple nodes if you have access to a, a cluster, and, and taking that distributed approach to analyzing geospatial location data of postal codes and economic regions in Canada. And for some context on the data itself, the postal codes table data set has six columns and about 900,000 rows, where each row represents a point or, or an XY coordinate, um, while the economic regions data set has four columns and just 76 rows. Uh, and each row in this data set represents a polygon uh, or a set of points that connect to form an enclosed boundary. So if you're not familiar with uh, working with geospatial data, that is a, a common uh, type of GIS location data. And Ryan sets out to find where the postal codes intersect within these economic regions polygons, which is fairly straightforward uh, thanks to some functionality from the SF package. There is a function called ST underscore intersection, which does exactly that. Um, and, and he works through three possible approaches to doing this, uh, all in the spirit of trying to use whichever approach will take the least amount of processing time. Uh, and he takes a pretty clever approach of splitting the data into logical regions up front so that postal code points from, from one side of Canada are not tested for intersection against polygons that are on the total opposite side of the country. Um, and, and then using the fur and future packages, uh, he's able to run the intersection job across eight cores on the Linux box that, that he's that it, this code is running on. And the job takes 3.6 minutes to run and compare that to his attempt to run the same job without parallel processing. So just on one core 
took 58 minutes to run. So that is a 16 times speed improvement uh, using the fur and future packages to distribute this workload uh, across multiple multiple nodes or cores. And I mean, the proof is, is right is there in the pudding. Amazing right? stuff. But this, for those that might have been scared in the past about, oh, oh, now we have to deal with these different architectures to spread these processing bits out. What is a core anyway? Guess what? The fur package combined with future is making your life as an analyst so much easier to deal with this stuff. Am I passionate about this ecosystem? Oh, heck yes, I am, because it has been a huge help to me spreading the knowledge to my colleagues at the day job about with the infrastructure that we have in place combined with these wrappers on top. You don't need to wait an entire day to do that biomarker analysis. You could get this done within 10 minutes or less just with clever use of processing. It is really easy to get started. And credit to um, the FUR package for making that integration a per map reduced like functionality and functional programming integrate with futures so easily. Like it, it is so awesome to get started with this. And now it frees up your time to do the real fun stuff in your data science pipeline, not just wait for a prompt that doesn't show anything until 58 minutes through. <laughs> that, that, would, that would drive me nuts. Um, but really great accessible example here from Ryan on how you can get started with this really quickly. And certainly I've been called on in the past from those saying, you know, hey, I wrote this code, but boy, he's taking so long. Why? Sometimes it's obvious why, but when it's obvious why, you still may not know an obvious fix. And that's where now you can connect both of those dots. High dimensional data, reducing group processing, yes, but now take advantage of technology to make that bit even easier. I really enjoyed this post. And certainly if you're in this domain of geospatial data and you've encountered this issue in the past, just taking a step back and figuring out first, where could the efficiencies be gained? But now knowing that you found the problem, how do you solve it? This is a, a great read and really going to be putting this in my bookmarks as a, a reference point for those that complain to me that HPC is too hard. No, it's not. Not with these wrappers. Yeah, well, that's because uh, your simulation is built with a in a for loop that is filling an empty list, right? And, uh, <laughs> not that I've ever had any clients uh, who have shown me some code like that before that we've worked on refactoring, but uh, just saying. And yeah, I, I can't agree more that the tools that we have at our fingertips today, I mean, things that probably took, you know, days or, or at least hours uh, to, to run simulations or geospatial jobs, things like that. Now should take minutes or seconds, which which is really, really incredible. And I, I believe that there are some advancements in the geospatial data analysis realm coming to the Aero package in that ecosystem as well. I believe there's some work on a geo Aero package or, or something like that. So I'm excited. I'm a huge uh, fan of everything that's going on within that environment. Uh, and I'm excited to see what comes of geospatial uh, advances in, in the aero ecosystem. 
We will definitely be staying tuned for that. I've been hearing the rumblings. I've seen teases out there. So I think 2023 is going to be a great year in this space as well. We're going to take a visit in our last highlight to Mike and I's, uh, Mike, say, comfort zone, the shiny corner once again. And I'll preface this by saying that I've had, you know, some experiences where I've developed a sophisticated shiny app as the lead developer, but also just so happened to be one of the lead users of it, too. Talk about scratching your own itch, right? Yes, I've been there, but that's not always the case. Most of the time in my other projects, I am the lead developer or architect of it, but I'm not the target user. This is for the non-statisticians. This is for the non-data scientists who just want an easy interface to get those insights or get those metrics out so they can make a big decision on. Now, what's interesting is with that developer perspective, you might be more forgiving of a few user experience issues because you're just happy and amazed that the darn thing works at all. I've been there. I know how you feel. Well, I have an example of that where one of my first major projects was admittedly one of those for me at first. And like we talked about in the last highlight, I was hooking up some HPC stuff to my Shiny app. And I had a very, very clever backend to make it all happen. My UI, though, was a little utilitarian. And then you would click a button to launch the analysis and then wait and wait. But I'm okay with it because I know what's happening on the back end. But can I expect a user who doesn't have, A, the development history that I have to build this, and B, frankly, the patience to wait that long without knowing what's going on, should I expect them to have my perspective on it? No, we shouldn't. And that's where this topic of responsiveness comes into play. And in particular, we have an awesome, awesome blog post, once again, from Jumping Rivers, authored by Tim Brock, about how you can improve the responsiveness of your Shiny apps to enhance your user experience. Now, this is some interesting references that, Mike, you're going to be touching on in a little bit here, but I didn't realize there's a lot of science behind studying responsiveness in web applications and it kind of makes me cringe a little bit of some mistakes I've had in the past. So there's been a little uh, looking at myself in the mirror as I, as I read this. But there are some big improvements you can make right away, starting really easy with some clever CSS tricks that say when you're clicking on something, that your cursor just changes a little bit to show that something's happening, much like you would get on a desktop PC or OS 10, whatever have you. But there are even other ways to up the ante on this, so to speak. If you have a plot or a table that's going to be re-rendering based on inputs that the user is clicking through, you can show them a loading indicator. There are easy packages to make this happen. Shiny CSS loaders, now maintained by Dean Atelli, is one of my favorites for this, as well as the waiter package by John Cohen, definitely a good friend and also top-notch developer. You can opt into these indicators really easily. So again, that's just the bare minimum, I think, of what you can do. And then if you know there's some progress happening in a, in a pipeline or an analysis, and you want to show the user with that, there are progress bars, progress indicators already built into Shiny, but also the aforementioned waiter package also lets you put that into play as well so they can 
at least get some encouragement that nothing's stalled, it's still progressing, and to, you know, just be patient a little bit. But then there's also a bigger paradigm in play here. Do you want the server side of your Shiny app to do absolutely everything? Not always, not always, because we do have a wonderful ecosystem of HTML widgets in play here, where now you can take the clicking within these interfaces to the client, i.e. the user that's browsing your app. Let their browser handle those interactions. And oftentimes you're gonna see extremely quick response times. I literally just had a project, albeit this wasn't with Shiny, but I built a new Quartal site. And in this Quartal site, I have an observable JS chunk in there to put a little table-like widget that updates instantly when the user sorts, when the user clicks a checkbox next to that row of the entry, filling in some text below. It literally is that fast. That is a great pattern, and especially in the concept of visualization too. You don't have to pre-specify everything yourself in your app. You can let the client widget handle the way you can zoom in, zoom out, partition data, let, let that do the heavy lifting here. And that is going to be a huge win for responsiveness. Now, the post concludes with that pattern may work well a lot of time, but not always. There could be situations where the JavaScript library just can't handle some of the complicated analyses that the R side of it or even the Python side of it have to deal with. And plus, you could go a little overboard with it. We've seen this happen. Maybe I've done that a couple times, I'll be honest, but you know, use it responsibly. And um, there's a great link to Colin Fay's talk that we talked about Colin recently about his talk at the recent Shiny in Production conference last year, where maybe widgets can go a little too far. So again, use it responsibly, but the, the idea in this post is, is all the same here. Find ways to tell your user that something's happening, and then take advantage of what's out there already to make your life easier, to bring data drill downs and interactive visualizations to their browser. You don't have to do everything. So great read here. I really enjoyed this post. And again, some advice that I have been adhering to since my initial days of learning that, oh, this app isn't just for me, is it? I've got to work my way up this UX game. So Tim, excellent write-up here. Some great advice, especially if you find yourself in a situation like I did, where maybe clicking that button and not showing anything for 20 seconds just isn't the best way possible. And yes, I did have users complain to me when I rolled that first version out that the app was down because nothing was happening. And I was like, yep, that's on me. That was fixed in version two. Oh, that last bit you just mentioned hits home because I do have I do have a loading screen right now that, that just says the same thing and it really needs to change its message uh, and provide some progress updates. So uh, that hurts, but I need to, I, it's, a, it's a good reminder of what's on my plate. It's a safe space here, Mike. We all been through it. <laughs> uh, we don't just ramble on this podcast, I swear. Not at all. But <laughs> uh, Tim, who's the author of this post, Tim Brock at Jumping Rivers, uh, really references this book, Designing with the Mind in Mind by Jeff Johnson a few times at the beginning of the blog post. And, and Jeff, the, that author, 
He makes a couple different arguments. First, that you have 0.1 seconds to provide a response when a user performs an action on your web page, a tenth of a second. Otherwise, their perception of cause and effect, you know, they clicked something and then this action should happen, um, will be broken. And then Jeff also argues, so I thought that was super interesting. And Jeff also argues that if something takes longer than one second, it needs a progress indicator, not just a waiting loading screen. I don't. I guess I don't know how I feel about that. I feel like, I don't know, maybe a, a couple seconds because one second, you know, that I'm just thinking about the time it takes to flash some sort of a waiting, loading, waiting screen. And then for that to be removed, um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that's I, I could, a little extreme. And again, audiences in mind here. Luckily for me, even these non-data scientists audience, I mean, they can be pretty patient. So I'm not as picky about some of those times, but I think the rest of the advice still holds true though throughout. Agreed, agreed. And I, I think it's all super interesting. Um, and we've talked a bit about WebAssembly lately. And I think this is a fairly related topic because that essentially treats the user's browser, right, as the, the quote unquote server. And, and similar, similarly, but, but not going all the way, as you said, Jumping Rivers recommends moving work from the Shiny server to the user's own browser where it makes sense. Um, and the HTML widgets package can be your best friend uh, in terms of developing a widget that, that moves the work associated with their Shiny apps widget from the server to uh, their browser, the client, making that response time seem instantaneous to the user. And it really is incredible. And lastly, I guess I'll just touch on um, Tim's reflection on Colin Fay's talk at the Jumping Rivers Shiny in Production 2022 conference, where Colin discussed the idea that maybe you don't always need to provide an interactive visual. And this one stopped me in my tracks. It hit me pretty good. Um, maybe a static visual is actually a better alternative sometimes because, for one thing, the static visual probably renders quicker. And then second, there's no user education required on how to properly interact with a static visual the way that there is with an interactive visual where some audiences might not know that, oh, okay, if I hover on this particular point, it'll give me the information in a tooltip uh, that I'm looking for, or I can drag it and move these things around as opposed to, you know, Colin's argument of just, just presenting, you know, a static visual and what they see is what they get and that's it. Uh, no two ways to interpret it. And I guess the last thing I'll point out is that this blog post is absolutely jam-packed with all sorts of helpful links and references. I may or may not have fell down a few pretty awesome rabbit holes along the way. So reader, be warned. Yes, I've, I've had fond memories of previous rabbit holes I went down um, with, especially getting back to some of the work that John Cohen has done with Waiter. Like that is now in every single app I do in one way, shape or form, whether it's the loading screen initially or that complicated plot that just needs a little bit of extra time to, to render. Really interesting ways to opt into these things. And speaking of Waiter, that is based with the R6 class system. So it might take a little getting used to if you're not used to that space. But I personally am on a R6 learning journey and hence it's great to see reference implementations that I can draw upon as I build my own fun, fancy R6 widgets. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm on the path, but it's an interesting path. 
I am on that same path these days as well, as well as R7, uh, I guess is what I've been looking at more so lately, but uh, definitely a lot there to, to take in, but a lot of utility as well. Yes. And, and certainly as we think about all these different ways you can optimize your app experience, if you're new to this, it is going to look a little daunting. You don't have to do everything all at once, really concentrating the parts that give you the most impact right away. For at least in my experience, it's never done after that initial rollout. You're always going to find things, whether it's you or your users. One way or another, you're going to find out. So being able to adapt quickly, but then have an idea of what you want to do long-term versus short-term. Again, this could be applied to any big project, but I've experienced this firsthand where I try to do too much at once. Instead, get the basics done first, then opt into this from the point forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what else did you find in the highlights this week, Eric? Yeah, another great tip to make your life easier, especially if you're cranking out a whole bunch of visual insights and you want to get the reader a little bit more of a targeted summary that they can quickly look at. And that's where John McIntosh's blog about using the headliner package to automate plot insights directly from data and the results. So it's a really fascinating read. And if you do find yourself in a situation that, like I did many years ago, where I had over 200 of these protein biomarkers, and I don't want the user to have to look at the plot so carefully for every single one of them. I want them to get that little snippet of text, either maybe above the plot or in the report, to get them to see maybe that improved treatment effect or that improved outcome very quickly. So Headliner is a great way to make that happen. And John's uh, post with some code linked throughout does a great job of introducing that. So I really enjoyed reading that one. And uh, Mike, what did you find? That is very, very cool. I just popped that open. I'm going to be diving into that after this for sure. Um, what I found was a fantastic Quarto Reveal.js slide deck on preventative care for R packages. I think it is such an important topic. And then this was authored by Indrajit Patil. I think it is such an important topic that does not get a lot of love, right? We, we have plenty of love for developing your R package and getting it out the door uh, the first time, but actually maintaining it over time and all the different other things that you need to think about in terms of maintaining uh, your R package, I, I think is a, a whole nother ball game that doesn't get enough love. And I really appreciated this expansive uh, slide deck from Indrajit that uh, I think is going to be one of my go-to resources now that I'm going to have uh, sort of in, in my <laughs> in my uh, library, so to speak, uh, for my package development and maintenance workflow. Yeah, Indrajit just nails this this very comprehensive uh, set of material here. He's been featured on a highlight, I think a couple of months ago about a similar idea from the development perspective. But like you said, Mike, this is a perspective that definitely needs attention, especially when I would see, you might say, uh, d desperate calls for help either on Twitter or other um, help forms about why certain checks were failing for their package and they just could not figure out why. Well, this um, this uh, slide deck here by Indrajit is I, a great way to pinpoint that. And um, it looks like Indrajit is uh, looking for opportunities. Uh, I glanced at the end of the post. So if you're 
in the need of a very talented research uh, software engineer and data scientist. Might want to give them a shout out. So just saying. Absolutely. And um, speaking of shout outs, um, as always, we always appreciate any feedback you have for the show. And if you're interested in getting in touch with us, well, you know, there's a real easy way to do it. All you have to do is grab yourself one of those new podcast apps at newpodcastapps.com. And then through the app itself, you can contact us directly. How easy is that, right? And they're very apps like Fountain and Podverse make this super easy to get set up. We'll have links in the show notes for details on how you can get on board with all that. And also, if you want to contribute to Art Weekly itself, that's super easy as well. Just go to artweekly.org. It's 2023. You can't miss this opportunity to bookmark that site for your reading pleasure every week. And you can give yourself a poll request to us with the current issues draft. And our curator of the week will be glad to get your resource, whether it's a blog post, new package, video tutorial, whatever have you. Um, we'll be happy to get that into the issue. And also feel free to get in touch with us. Of course, we love hearing from you. We love hearing that a, a certain link in a highlight or a certain link in the issue has upped your game and has the, enhanced your, our journey. We love hearing that. So where you can find me, I am still sporadically on Twitter with at the RCast, and I'm also on Mastodon with at our podcast at podcast index social. And Mike, where can the audience get a hold of you? Twitter at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K. And Mastodon at Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.org. Awesome stuff. And as always, we enjoy hearing from you. And again, thank you so much for tuning in for wherever you are around the world. And we've had a lot of great content here and we certainly hope to keep it going. And again, really enjoy um, this is always one of my highlights of the week. No pun intended, of course. <laughs> well, that'll do it for us um, for this episode 109. And we'll be back with another episode of our weekly highlights next week.